Welcome to this Sunday's message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. I want to say thank you, Tim. I want to say, first of all, I've loved preparing this message and it's done me good. I feel over the past few weeks just doing and looking at God's Word has done me good and it's fed me and I'm looking forward really to sharing it with you uh, because it's about three aspects of the nature of God um, which is really quite uh, big but our God is big but he wants us just to just to take it on uh, on board this morning and these three words we can have them up omniscience omnipresent and omnipotent they're all words that were coined in the beginning of the 17th century when the bible was being translated in its various forms and there were words that were coined from the latin which tried to tell us something about the nature of god Right, let's start. Omniscient. What does omniscient mean? It means our God is all-knowing. Our God knows everything. Uh, we, we, conti- we continue knowing and learning things all our lives, don't we? 10, 15, 20 years of education. And then we feel we only just scratch the surface by what we know. There's parenting, we've got to learn about that. Uh, There's work, relationships, we've got to keep on learning new things right to the end. We're learning. And we all say, oh, if I'd known then what I know now, oh, things would be so different. And we all say it. Because we're imperfect, we don't know everything. But God's not got that problem. Our God knows all things. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. And what is hidden from us is still known by him. Our God is wise in all he does. He knows all things. And we're he's grounded in his all-embracing knowledge. And I'd really want us just to just to meditate upon that. We can't advise God on his plans of action. We can't say, well, God, I think you should do it this way. We can't do that. Our God knows all things. Paul was awestruck. All oh, the depths of the wonders and knowledge and riches of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his, in, and his inescapable ways. For who knows the mind of God? Who knows the mind of God? How do you react to that? How do you react to understanding the mind of God? Well, we're going to look at one reaction this morning, a reaction of a psalmist in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, it's a famous psalm, but we can just go back to it and look at what the psalmist comes up with and says here, and what we can learn from him. So let's read Psalm 139, 
verses 1 to 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Wow. We're in the courtroom of God. The psalmist is in the courtroom. And God, the judge of the universe, stands before him. And the psalmist says, you've searched me, O God. You know me. You know me. You know my failings. You know my successes. You know my anxieties. You know my needs. And God's omniscience shows his intimate loving care for the psalmist. We are examined and declared not guilty through the blood of Jesus. Get that this morning. God knows everything about you. Yet we are saved and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. All our secret thoughts, all those actions that we've committed through time, God knows. But through Jesus, we've received forgiveness. We've received salvation. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows all the details. One of my favourite TV shows is uh, a, a crime drama called MacDonald and Dobbs. I don't know if you, anyone likes it. Uh, but I really like it. And one of the things I like about it is the way that this, uh, this little middle-aged guy called Dobbs, he, he looks at the forensic details and works things out. Our God knows all the details the forensic details of our lives. He searched us out. And not only that, his intense searching of us means he searches for the lost. He searches for us. He not only searches us, he searches for us. God knows all the details and he looks for the lost. And if you're feeling lost this morning, do know that the Lord has searched for you, and he's searching for you, and he knows you, and he brings you his forgiveness through Jesus this morning. Verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you perceive my thoughts from afar off. God knows all about the ordinary things in our lives. He knows when you sit down. That's what it says, sitting down. He well, knows when you sit down for your dinner. He knows what you're having for your dinner. Or not. It depends whether you eat your dinners or not. But he knows when you sit down. When we rise up, when we go out for a walk, he knows... You perceive my thoughts from afar off. Know that God is with you. He knows you. And he loves you. 
In the ordinary, everyday things of life, God knows nothing that goes on in our minds is beyond his sight. The God of the cosmos knows every single detail. Do not fear, therefore, for the hairs on your head are numbered. That's been mentioned to us before. But get that, we've got about 100,000 to 150,000 hairs on our head. Bald people have got the same number of follicles, so don't worry. Um, (laughs) But if you've got 100,000 hairs on your head, blonde people have got a few more. So if you're blonde, you've got extra. Um, God knows and numbers every one, the psalmist says, uses that image. You know, number 4,726. He knows. Every bit and single part of you. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Discern means to investigate, to examine, to assess. Our God goes before us in times of activity and times of rest. He's there. He's familiar with every path that we take. He searches out the way forward for each one of us. He's familiar. He knows. He knows the way. We're not going to get lost in him. We're not going to get lost in God. Now the heart is deceitful above all things. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows you better than you know yourself. I love to hold an old hymn. I know who holds my future and guides me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. In Jesus, we have that security. Everything by him is planned. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Wow. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Get that? Before you speak, God knows. Before you even think it, God knows. He knows. He knows. How are you responding to this? How are you responding to the omniscience of the Father? Wow. Wow. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand on me. To hem means to enclose, to herd. But it's also, of course, uh, what you do to material that stops it from fraying. You hem a dress so it won't fray. Our gods... Won't let us fray. Won't let us become untangled. He knows us. He hems us in. Now, his overwhelming knowledge of what I'm saying to you this morning, I want to say, is this a threat? This hemming, you know, does God know that so much? Does he know so much about me? He's hemming me in. It sounds, oh, I don't like this. Or is it security, love? Our God loves us. 
as we're going to see. His omniscience, he knows us. We've got a blessed security in him. The sheep in the sheepfold. We can run to the strong tower of his salvation. And then the psalmist says, you lay your hand upon me. A gentle reassurance. God says to you this morning, I know, I know, my hand's on you. I know. I know what you're going through. I know the problems. I'm with you. Come to me, you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain, says the psalmist. Well, what can we say? He's right, isn't he? I can't explain it. We can't explain this. We can't explain the omniscience of God. All we can do is declare his majesty. It's wonderful, which means strange. It's marvellous. It's supernatural. It's beyond our comprehension. This God who is omniscient, who knows us now in this place at this time. Wow. So that's omniscience. Now we move on to omnipresence. The omnipresence of God. Our God transcends all limitations of time, space and time. He's present in his fullness in every place. Now in the Old Testament, they, they, they began to realise this. Solomon, when he built a wonderful temple for God, said this, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less then this house that I have built? Solomon had an inkling of the omnipresence of God, saying, well, how can the God who is everywhere dwell here in this particular spot? Well, he doesn't. God is everywhere in space and time. So let's move on in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit, the psalmist says. Where can I flee from your presence? That's what we call a rhetorical question. Because the answer is nowhere, you can't. Where can I go? Nowhere. You can't run away from God. You can't run. It's a, you know, it's a, a nonsensical question. And then verse 8. If I go up to the heavens... You are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Sometimes we may fall or trip, fall over and thinking, oh, I've fallen out of the presence of God. I've fallen away. I've fallen. I've tripped. I made a mistake. I've done that thing wrong. 
And God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm here. And when we fall or trip, he's there. When we flee, when we try to run away, he's there. We've got the example of Jonah. I love the story of Jonah. Don't you just love the story of Jonah? Because you think, look at this guy. He's just like us, really. I mean, God asks him to do something, and he runs away. He thinks he can run away, but he can't. He can't run away. He flees. We can run, but we can't hide. Can't hide. God is there. And Jonah finally knows that. We can be trapped in a dark place. Jonah was finally trapped in a dark place. I mean, I don't think I'd like to be trapped in the belly of a big fish. Would you? Wet, dark, smelly, cold, and horrible. You're trapped in a dark place. But God was there. God was there. The dark place, Sheol, the place of the dead, the place of dust, the place... Uh, the, you know, of the place of the earth, place of despair, depression, circumstance, trouble, all these things that afflict us, God is there. God is there. I was always moved by a story of a Chinese Christian in one of the camps in China. And he did the job that no one else wanted to do. He cleaned the cesspit. Every day, he took his shovel and he would go into the cesspit to clean out the cesspit, to shovel the dirt, to shovel the excretions. And people looked at him and said, he he seems to do it joyfully. He seems to do it wanting to do it. Why is he doing this? And he confessed that he did it because it was the place where he could be alone with God. In this dark, smelly pit, he could sing, I came to the garden alone while the dew was still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he calls me his own. In the dark, smelly pit. Alone with his God. God never left. Never leaves. He's always there. You know, uh, in North Korea, the prisoners who are prisoners for Christ, they hear the angels singing. Oh, don't you want to hear the angels sing? God has given them the grace to hear the angels sing. Tells them he's with them. I'm here. I'm here. I'm not going to leave. I'm with you. I'm omnipresent. So high, you can't get over it. So low, you can't get under it. So wide, you can't get around it. Oh, rock my soul. And when we take diverging paths, when we think we're going to do the wrong way, when we move the wrong way, when we've taken the wrong job, when we've moved to the wrong place, when we think we've done the wrong thing, 
God's still there. He knows when we make that wrong choice. And he will lead and he will guide and he will restore and he will renew and he will guide us and he will make something great for him as we rely on him. Yeah? He guides us. He leads us, directs us. He holds us fast. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There we've got the image of the dawn. And when your dawn comes up in the east or near the equator, the dawn comes up quick. The dawn doesn't rise like in the north, which is slow dawn. It doesn't do that. It, boom, it's there. Light suddenly. And the light crosses the dark world, 186,000 miles a second. The wings of the dawn. But you can't outrun God. He's there before you arrive. He guides us leads us he holds us fast he won't let go and he's always present with his people always present with those who love him you know can we imagine Paul standing in the middle of Athens amongst all these intellectuals all these philosophers all these great men of classical Greece the great men of learning and there's Paul standing on his own uh, in the middle of Athens and what does he say God is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being hallelujah amen verse 11 if I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. In our time of darkness, the salvation of our God shines in everlasting light. And he's especially close to the needy, to all who call upon his name. We come from the darkness of dust. We come from the darkness of dust and we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist goes on to tell us. We're made in the darkness of the womb from conception as the cell splits. Our soul is born in that darkness and we are knit together in our mother's womb knit together God doesn't drop a stitch we're knit together in our mother's womb so that we grow we're born God has got his hand on us from that moment of conception to the moment when our breath is given for the last time and we move into a seeming darkness of death. But in fact, of course, we move into the light of his presence, the light of his glory. 
Each fetus is a special act of creation. Each one. Everyone. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Made, in the Hebrew here, by the way, in Psalm 139, it's an interesting use of the Hebrew word. The word made there means set apart. You get that? In the womb, we're set apart to be vessels carrying the image of God. Wow, can't get around our minds around this. Wow, how blessed, how blessed that is. We die in the darkness of death, but the light of God will illuminate our ending. I read an interesting book, which is a lovely book. It's called Imagine Heaven by John Burke. And he's collected all these uh, near-death experiences and he's drawing some theological conclusions from them all. And what's common about them all is about that when people die, they walk into the light. And that's the promise that's given to us. We will walk into the light. From, our con- from conception to our last earthly breath, we move into the glory. Because Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 14 says, Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Take it all in. The fullness of the wonders of God. Allow him to speak to you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God knows all things, even the questions of your heart. God is always there, even in the darkness of the suffering and loss. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent. Oh, have I finished? No, I haven't finished because there's more and it gets even better. Our God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. His will is never frustrated by evil. This means that with peace and confidence in him, the Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. His counsel stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. Look at the history of God's church. We see God's kingdom advancing as heaven starts to be filled with all who call upon his name. Our God is powerful. He's never frustrated. I want to show you two images. This first one, that's Kim Jong-un's dad and grandfather statues in Pyongyang. Look at the people on the side there. All these little people bowing down to these idols, these god kings. Bowing down to the power and might of the Kim dynasty. This is our world. So I've got another image. 
When I went to Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, you might have been to Chatsworth House in Derbyshire and seen this. It's a big foot. Now, I think it's really interesting. It's a, it's a massive foot. It's huge. This big foot came out of classical Greece. No one knows who it's, who it's of. It's just a foot. But one massive statue was built to glorify man. And all that's left is a foot. <laughs> There's a famous poem by a poet I like called Shelley, who says this when he's talking about the statue of Ramesses in the Egyptian desert. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Things that we build to the glory of man will crumble and fall. Saddam Hussein, before he, was, he, was, he fell uh, in Iraq, had gone to the, uh, the old towers of Babel and he'd inscribed his name on the bricks. These God kings, they crumble, they fall. Their power is gone through time. The statues of Stalin have been collected and, and just thrown into a parks across Russia and Ukraine. We do nothing. We cannot worship these God kings. But our God reigns. Robed in majesty, he's put on strength like a belt. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Our God is king of the universe. He is king, he is great, he is almighty. Jesus has put on now his omniscience, omnipresence and omnipotence. When Jesus came to us, he laid aside those qualities of his majesty, but now he has taken them up again. And what does Jesus look like now? When we look, when John meets him in Revelation chapter 1, John, the beloved disciple, is awestruck. He's gobsmacked. He falls on his face as though dead. Who is this glittering, mighty king? Before him. And at the end of time, Jesus is described for us. Have you read this description of Jesus before? This one in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me on a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges 
His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. His name is the word of God and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our Lord Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In the last few weeks, we've seen the power of, about the power of God in creation. God who calls the stars by name and holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. And we see the power of our God throughout Scripture. You know, there's a great roll call of the power of God in the Old Testament. I just looked through the Old Testament and found examples of the power of God. Creation, teeming complexities, Egypt, plague and deliverance, the exodus, hundred thousands crossing the Red Sea, which is opened before the children of Israel, the wilderness, fire and cloud leading the people, Food and water provided. Crossing the Jordan, the river opens up again. And Jericho falls. And the promised land is captured. And then amazing power miracles where the earth stands still. I love that miracle. It's amazing. Can you get that? the earth must have stood still so that the armies of Joshua could conquer. The scripture says the sun stood still, but of course we know that it's probably that the earth was standing still. Time stopped so that Joshua could conquer and the battle is won. The temple of Dagon, the Philistines, is smashed and brought low. Elijah on Mount Carmel prays for fire from a clear blue sky and fire falls. Rain is withheld and supplied. Armies are blinded and vanquished. Healings take place. Resurrections happen. People are raised from the dead. Daniel and his friends are delivered from lions and fire. Jonah is delivered from the belly of the big fish. There's an enormity and cosmic power of creation taking place. And what I love is that where we see these cosmic acts of God's power and creative force, we also see his concern with the ordinary. The needs of a starving widow who is given an everlasting jug of oil to make cakes. The transcendence, the imminence of God. Our God reigns. Yes? Yes. Our God reigns. But there's more. There's more. But we're going to have a glass of drink of water before I go on. Because it gets better. And you're stirred by this. 
They're stirred by the power, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of our God. You see, the power and omnipotence of God is shown finally in our salvation. Jesus, Son of God, laid aside his majesty. He laid aside his omnipotence. He laid aside his omniscience. He laid aside his omnipresence. And he became like me and you. A suffering servant. He took our sin died for us, the sinless man on the cross. He was never frustrated by evil. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work was completed. Man was reconciled to God. The great moment of power in history. Jesus said, it is finished. The work completed. The power of God was released. The veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Man could now come to the Godhead and praise and worship as we've been doing this morning. And the tombs were broken open and heaven began to be filled with the Old Testament saints who had been in the darkness of death. And they joined in the hallelujahs with that dying thief on the cross on that day as paradise was opened for all those who call upon the name of Jesus. And on the Sunday morning, the power of God rolled that stone away. The stone rolled away so we could see the stone rolled away so we could see the power of God take place. And there's an empty tomb. Death is defeated. Jesus is alive. Luke, writing in Acts, says this. God raised him up, loosing the, pang, the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. It was not possible. For our Lord Jesus to die after he conquered sin and death. He rose. He's alive. The power of God. And now that same power of God in creation, in his wondrous acts, in the vanquishing of sin and death, in the resurrection work is available in, to each one of us. Paul says in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul talks, tells us more of God's amazing power and grace in Ephesians. The incomparable great power for us who believe. That great power is like the working of his mighty strength, which is exalted in Christ, who, is raised, who raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. Paul is struck again by the power of God working in the life of Jesus and now at work in all who call upon his name. God's power was unleashed at, the, unleashed at the cross. God's power was unleashed at the resurrection. God's power was released for us at Pentecost. His Holy Spirit comes. 
The Greek word dynamis, dynamite, spiritual power. We worship an all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God. I want to conclude by looking at this name of God, which I think is, is I think particularly lovely. And it's the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Our almighty, all-sufficient God. El Shaddai is a name of God that encompasses this thought that God is almighty. We first read it in scripture to Abraham. It was the name God spoke to Abraham. Abraham, a lonely nomad, whose natural and spiritual descendants will populate earth and heaven. El Shaddai, the almighty God. El means God almighty. Powerful to fulfill every promise. He's all sufficient. He overcomes every obstacle. He's transcendent. And Shaddai, Shaddai has got a Hebrew root which connects it with the Hebrew word for breast. It means God is our nourisher, our supplier. God is caring for us. He nourishes, he supplies, he satisfies. A God who loves us like a mother. I've talked this morning about the fatherhood of God. And these tend to be the attributes, tend to carry male characteristics. But never, let's never forget, the attributes of the female are in the Godhead too. Think of the motherhood of God. God who cares. God who loves. God who carries us in his arms. Who nourishes. Who satisfies. When we see a mother and her baby... Again, let us think, though, it's an image of our God, all-powerful, all-present, all-seeing, all-loving, all-caring. Wow. God, our Father, is also our mother. Isn't that lovely? I really think that is something that we can hold. And this is there in that word, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. A God who satisfies. Our God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. And we see his mighty power in Jesus. Jesus enables blessings to flow upon us. Spiritual refreshment is brought to us. A land flowing with milk. Of course it's milk. God is carer. God is our mother. And honey, sweet. God loves us. Now, the prophet Zephaniah puts it so well, these two aspects of our God. He says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you. Rock you with his love. He will quiet you with his love. And he does it in Jesus. 
omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, our mighty God is here now by the Spirit. He knows each one of us. He holds us like a mother. He will never leave us or forsake us. And we call on his name, we call on Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Could you just stand, please, and just let's respond to this. If you just like to put your hands out, just respond to this, these three awesome words. Our God is omniscient. He knows you through and through. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. Your life is in his hands. God is ever present with you. The power of the Holy Spirit is your encourager, your comfort, your guide. He knows, he holds, he cares, and he keeps you. And our God is all-powerful. Every mountain, every obstacle, every difficulty, things that just seem absolutely out of our control, every sin, every failure, every regression, God knows. And he will never leave you or forsake you. He says now, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, the living way. He's here now for you. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Come to him. Rejoice in him. As you go forward, in his blessed name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the King's Church, Mid-Sussex. To connect with us online, visit tkc.org.uk. We hope you'll join us again soon.